Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. And the elders, the four creatures are worshiping him. And it is this incredible scene of, of something unimaginable. And then, you know, there's this scroll and no one is able to open it. But then he hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to open the scroll because he has conquered. And so he turns and he looks and behold, there's a lamb that was slain and he is worthy to open the scroll. And then just imagine him, again, you're thinking from the perspective of the seven churches, right? So imagine hearing for the first time everything that John says in the seven seals as they are opened. And just the, the wonder of like, Oh my goodness, this is incredible. Look at these look at these images that he is giving us. And then, you know, you can continue through the exer- with this exercise through the entire book of Revelation up to this point and say, "Okay, this is amazing. This is incredible." But John, when when is this going to happen? What's going on? I mean, th- this sounds all amazing and all, but we're still here in Asia Minor. The Roman Empire is still in control. Jezebel continues to teach false doctrine. The Nicolaitans continue to, to teach false doctrine. We are still being persecuted. What, what's going on? I mean, all of this sounds amazing, but but when is all of this going to be realized? When is all of this going to be materialized? And well, we have finally come to the point in the book of Revelation where uh, we, we have finally come to the climax and the conclusion of the book of Revelation. In other words, it's almost as if it's almost as if we've gotten to the point where John says, all right, this is it. This is it. This is the point where heaven meets Earth, the earth. This is a point where Jesus comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah and conquers his enemy and delivers his people. This is it. This is the moment. This is the moment that we have all been waiting for. Um, and, and this is the passage that we're about to read. And, and, and all the way through the end of the book, this is the climax and the conclusion of the book of Revelation. So let's uh, read verse 11, chapter 19, verse 11. And uh, I'm going to ask you to stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his tie, thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who, is in, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In this uh, final section of the book of Revelation, John begins a series of visions, and they are all neatly marked by the phrase, and I saw. Depending on your translation, they might, it might vary a little bit. Some might say, and then I saw, or and I saw. But uh, when you look at it in, in Greek, it is just two words. In, in English, we have three, but and I saw. And you see it marked very, very, very clearly all the way to the beginning of chapter 21. He is showing us different visions. Um, and what these visions are meant to explain, what these visions are meant to communicate, are ultimately the victory of God. The final victory of God. Everything He has been telling us all of the realities that have been going on in heaven. He has been telling us all of the things that will happen, all the things that have happened. He has communicated a lot of theological principles about God's reign, God's dominion. But here, starting in verse 11, all the way to the beginning of chapter 21, John is finally wrapping things up. John is finally saying, all right, this is it. This is the moment where everything climaxes. This is, this is it. And so we see this pattern and in this pattern, John, and, and ultimately it is God, because God is giving the revelation to John, uh, God is systematically tying all the loose ends, concluding the book, and ultimately he is uh, showing systematically how he is going to deal with each one of his enemies, how he is going to establish his kingdom on earth, how he is going to vindicate those who have suffered for their witness to the truth. Um, and this is how he is tying all those ends. And so, um, remember, for example, at the beginning of the book, Jesus encouraged the believers of Asia Minor and ultimately all of believers to conquer. He has showed them, uh, remember when, uh, uh, right at the end of the, the messages to the churches in Asia Minor, John says that he saw heaven and he saw a door open in heaven and he was invited to come up 
And so he was invited to go see what was going on in heaven, right? He, he was speaking from the perspective of someone here on earth, but he was invited to go see what was going on in heaven. And what he realized is that in heaven, God is seated on his throne. In heaven, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. In heaven, Jesus has already conquered. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah that has conquered. And so he is seeing all of these heavenly realities. But here in chapter 19, verse 11, we finally see heaven opened and not just a little door or a door. It doesn't say that it's a little door, but it's not just a door, but rather is heaven opened, right? In verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So he's seeing heaven open, and we are about to see how from heaven now, all of these heavenly realities that John had seen in his vision are now coming down to earth. How God's kingdom on, in heaven is now finally coming down to earth. The heavenly Jerusalem is now coming down to earth. Everything is finally being realized in this section. And the, the, the main character here in this section, the, the star of this section is Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is finally the conquering Messiah that comes and fulfills every single one of the Old Testament Jewish expectations for a Messiah. When Jesus first came, the Jews were confused, right? Because they were expecting to see this. This picture that we see here in chapter 19, this is exactly what they were expecting to see. And so they were confused when Jesus came and he did not come like this. But we know that he had to come as a servant first. He had to go to the cross first. He had to suffer first. But here in chapter 19, verse 11 and, and, and following, Jesus is finally coming as the ultimate completion of God's purposes. He is coming in his full glory. Now, earlier I mentioned, imagine that you're from the perspective of the seven churches in, in Asia Minor. But really, we don't have to do a whole lot of imagining to, to think about how they were feeling. Because a lot of the things that they were experiencing are things that we are experiencing as well. Right? They were experiencing temptation from the world. Well, we are experiencing temptation from the world. They were experiencing uh, false teaching. Well, hopefully not within Kaleo, but there is a lot of false teaching within the, the church in general, the universal church. Um, they were experiencing persecution. Well, the church today is experiencing persecution. Some places way more than others, right? Right now, we're, we're pretty good. We're fine. We're able to meet here and, and mostly undisturbed. But there are other places in the world. There are other believers in the world that are experiencing extreme persecution. They have to hide. They have to, um, uh, they cannot have a Bible with them. We have, I don't know how many Bibles we have. I have tons of Bibles. And, and, and there are countries in the world where they cannot even have a Bible. So it is not hard for us to put ourselves into the situation that the seven churches in Asia Minor were, um, the situation that they were experiencing. 
And so I think that it, is, it could be easy for us to be discouraged. It could be easy for us to think and say, okay, we've been talking about the kingdom of God. We've been talking about Jesus's victory. We've been talking about Jesus conquering. We've, we've seen all of these highly triumphalistic images of God's kingdom. But if all of this is true, then why are we here right now? Why, why are we not making more progress? Why are we not, why am I not experiencing more victory over my sin? Why am I, uh, why are the crowds not coming here to this building, right? Why is Aberdeen not turning to Christ? And I think that those are legitimate questions, but I think that the answer is, or, or the final hope that we have is here in this passage. Because Jesus has not returned in his full glory. Because even though his kingdom has already begun, he has not yet come to fully usher, usher his kingdom here on earth. But we do have the hope that he will do it. We do have the hope that he will return, as it is described here in this passage, to finally establish his kingdom. So John sees a rider on a white horse. And this section of Revelation is actually one of the few sections in the entire book where virtually everyone agrees on the interpretation of this, of this section. I don't think there's anyone within Orthodox Christianity that would say, this is not Jesus, right? I think everyone agrees that this rider on this white horse is a description of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so from this description, we learn multiple things about him. One of the things we learn is, is, is through four, of, four names that are, that are told, although we only know three of them. One of them is just says that no one knows the name except for him. But he is still given three more names, or he is still called by three more names in this section. And so we learn uh, about his character. We learn, we learn about his victory. We learn about who he is. We learn about his glory. And so let's dig into those. Let's think about his names for, for a moment here. It says in verse 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So the first name that he is, uh, that he is called, or the, the first name that he is given here in this vision is Faithful and true. And this speaks of his divinity for this is a, a, a title that was attributed to God in, in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. So whenever John says that he is faithful and true and he attributes it to Jesus, then we know that he's claiming the divinity of Jesus. We also remember at the beginning of the book that it's said of Jesus that he is the faithful witness. So it talks about his, his witness to the truth. He is the perfect witness of God. He is the only one who has perfectly spoken the truth about who God is. He is the only one that when we look at him, we can see the glory of God. So he is faithful. He is the faithful representation of God. Also, faithfulness, I think it speaks of his justice. And, and, and not just faithfulness, but faithfulness in in. Uh, in combination with true, remember in verse nineteen, in chapter, um, 
in chapter 14, I'm sorry, chapter 15, when they are singing the song of Moses, the song of Moses, it says, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. And this whole song is about God's judgment, God's righteousness. And this is what it says here as well. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. So this name speaks of God as being the ultimate judge. And now this is interesting because first he is the witness. He is the faithful witness. But now as he comes, as he comes in his full full glory, he is the faithful judge. Now, why should we why should we care about this? What, what is the point of this? Well, Jesus is the only faithful one, the only one worthy of our full trust. Today, there are many people claim, or many, many people, may, many institutions, may, many organizations claiming our allegiance. There are many politicians saying, hey, if you if you come to my party, if you vote for me, if you, if you give me your allegiance, I will, I will do this. I will finally make America great again. <laughs> or I will finally, what's, what's uh, I don't even know Biden's tagline. That's how, what's that? Re- I'm sorry, I cannot hear you. <laughs> Build back better. All right, so maybe there's someone saying, hey, If you come to me, if you trust in me, if you give me your vote, we will build back better. And then whatever the next politician, whatever next tagline they're going to come up with, again, it's designed to make you put your trust in them. To say, oh yeah, yeah, he's finally going to resolve all of our problems. He's finally going to fix our our education system. He's finally going to fix whatever has gone wrong with our country. But Jesus is the only faithful one. He is the only one that deserves our full trust and allegiance. And Jesus is not outside of politics. I mean, he's described as a king, right? He is the only faithful ruler. He is the only faithful president, if you will. He is the only one that can be fully trusted Now, he is true. Babylon offers luxuries and pleasure, but this is all a lie. This is all, uh, uh, it's all passing. It's all being defeated. The beast offers security, success. The beast has signs that, that performs so that people will worship him. But Jesus is the only one that stands for truth. The beast is empowered by the devil who is the father of life. The beast is deceiving people, but Jesus is the only one that is true, and therefore he is the only one that we can trust. Jesus is also the ultimate judge, right? It says that he, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He is the ultimate judge. It doesn't matter what the veredict of the followers of the beast or of the beast is of us, right? In other words, it doesn't matter what the beast says of us. It doesn't matter what the followers of the beast say of us. What matters is what Jesus has to say about us. It doesn't matter what the world is, is um, 
or, or I should put it this way, we shouldn't be trying to please the world or to gain the world's approve it, uh, uh, approval because ultimately, it is only God's judgment that matters. He is the judge. He is the righteous judge. And he will fight our battles. He makes war. This entire, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the image of the battle of Armageddon is this image of God coming and miraculously and powerfully defeating the enemies of his people. This is a proverbial battle where, where everyone is surrounded by the enemy, enemy armies and they, there seems to be no hope and that God comes and acts miraculously and delivers his people. And this passage is describing that. It's describing the battle of, of Armageddon. It's describing how God in or God through Christ is waging war on our behalf. He is the only one that delivers us. And because he is the one waging war, because he is the mighty warrior, then it means that we don't have to seek revenge in this world. It means that we don't have to seek to, to uh, dominate this world through the sword or through our guns or whatever it is, through the force. No, I mean, or by force, not the force. This is not Star Wars. Um, rather, we can trust that Jesus is the one who is going to fight our battles and he is the one who will conquer our enemies. Now, we also learn in verse 12 that nothing escapes his sight. It says his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. We've already heard this term of his eyes being like a flame of fire. This is how he is described at the beginning of the book. And remember what he says to one of the churches? He says, I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give each of you according to your, work, to your works. If he is the ultimate judge, and he can see through anything, if he is the ultimate judge and he searches your mind and your heart, there is no escaping him. Right? I was telling uh, Marcus a story that my dad used to tell me, and it's a, you know, it's a pretty simple story, but I think it communicates a great point. There was a, a dad with his son, and they went out to a field, uh, maybe a, a pumpkin patch, and the dad wanted to steal a pumpkin. So he tells his son, hey, son, I'm going to go get that, that pumpkin. But if someone comes, you need to alert me, okay? You need to let me know. If someone is watching, you need to let me know. And so he's, about, he's getting ready to cut the, pup, the pumpkin. And the son is like, hey, daddy, daddy, someone is watching. Someone is watching. And the dad is like, what? No, no one is watching. Come on. And so he goes back to try to cut it. And then the son again, hey, daddy, someone is watching. And this happens multiple times. So the dad is like, okay, what's going on? Who's watching? And the son says, well, God is watching. God is seeing, right? So again, this illustrates the point that there is nothing that we can hide from God. And he is the ultimate righteous judge. So wouldn't it make sense to get right with him? Right? If, if, if we cannot hide anything from him, not even the motives of our of our mind or, or, or of, our, of our heart, 
wouldn't it make sense to make things right with him? He has many diadems, and, and we, will talk about, we will talk about this a little bit more when we deal with this name of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But basically, like I said, this is Jesus finally coming as the ultimate ruler that the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting a Messiah, a king, a, a, a warrior. And this is Jesus coming and fulfilling all of those expectations. Now it says that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. I mean, what can I tell you about this? We don't know his name. We don't know this particular name that is written. And, and I think this is a good reminder for us and, and a reminder that has not been missing as we study the book of Revelation. But this is a reminder that there is still a lot of mystery. There are still a lot of things that we don't know. You might have your eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the, the last things. You might have your eschatology all figured out and you might have your, your end times map charted out perfectly. But you need to understand that there are things that we will not understand. There are things that we simply don't know. And I think that all of us, every single one of us, we are going to be so shocked when a lot of these things happen because they're going to be probably very different from what we were expecting. Now it says, uh, well, his, the, the, the third name that he is uh, named with is, he is the word of God. So in verse 13, it says that he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. We will go back to that point of, of his robe being, being uh, dipped in blood. But right now, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that he is the word of God. Now, I know that there are multiple implications about Jesus being the word of God. But one of the ones that we have been seeing in this book is that whatever God accomplishes, he accomplishes it through his word. Right, God. I mean, we see in the book of in, in the book of Genesis that God created everything by His Word. He delivers His people by His Word. Whatever God accomplishes, He accomplishes it by His Word. And so here, the fact that Jesus is called the Word of God means that He is the agent of God's will. Everything that God accomplishes, He accomplishes it through His Son Jesus. Everything that Jesus does is exactly what the Father wanted him to do. Everything that Jesus does, his victory over his enemies, the establishment of his kingdom, the deliverance of his people, is God himself doing it through his word, through his son. Jesus is the word of God. So do you want to know God? You have to meet him through his word. Do you want to follow God's command. You have to look to his word. Do you want to be in a right standing with God? There is only one way. It is through his word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's this little intermission in the middle of the description of Jesus. Jesus as a, as a triumphant Messiah. And this intermission is in verse 
14, it says, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, this verse might be a little bit tricky at first because it says that the armies of heaven were with him. And when we think of the armies of heaven, we might think of the angels. But if we continue reading, it says, They are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. What does that remind you of? What did, what did Sam preach last week? Who is dressed in fine linen? It's the bride. It's the church. It's the people of God. And if you look at uh, chapter 19, verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the armies of God here is the saints, the people of God. They are with him. Remember that it says in chapter 14 that they are with him wherever he goes. So here Jesus is coming to earth to finally establish his kingdom and his people are right there with him. Jesus is waging war against his enemies and his people are right there with him. And this this should be extremely encouraging for us because even though there are many things that we do not understand yet about the book of Revelation or about the end of of things and, and the consummation of God's kingdom, there is one thing we do know. We will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. So we should not be afraid. We should not be concerned. We shouldn't be like, oh, look at all of the things that are happening in the world. Look at, look at Russia and Ukraine and maybe this is prophecy being fulfilled. What's going to happen? Well, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus for salvation, you will always be with the Lord. And this should give us extremely, this should give us uh, a lot of hope. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the, the, the third name that we do know. It says in verse 15, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the fulfillment and culmination of every Old Testament prophecy. In fact, we could, we could look into this little chapter and connect how each one of these things that John is saying about Jesus is a fulfillment of something that the Old Testament has said about Jesus. And here, like I said earlier, this is where Jesus is finally coming in his full glory. This is where there's no getting him confused with something or someone else. When you look at this passage, it, it is so crystal clear that he is the fulfillment of Jewish expectation. He is the Messiah. But not only that, he is also the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Caesar from the Roman Empire, he would deceive the, the, the nations and, and give this title to himself. 
right? Remember, we, we're talking about the Roman Empire as being the beast. And so the beast wants worship for himself. He wants to claim what only belongs to God and he wants to claim it for himself. But Jesus is ultimately King of kings and Lord of lords. He strikes the nations with the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. This is his worth, right? Remember what Jesus said in John 12, 44. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So how is Jesus going to judge the world? Through his word, through the things that he has said, right? Because he has claimed to be God. He has claimed to be the way to God, to the Father. He has claimed that salvation is only in him. And so this, what this passage in, in John is saying is that it's not necessarily Jesus who is going to judge these people here. Rather, condemnation is brought upon themselves because of their lack of belief in God's word. You might, you might think of Jesus as a, a good teacher, a, a good person, a good example to follow. But the problem with that is that even though he is all of those things, he himself claimed to be God. He himself claimed that it was only through him that you could reach salvation and that you could go to the Father. And so you can believe in him as a good teacher and as a good person all you want, but if you reject what he himself has to say, well, then it is his word that is going to judge you. It is his word that is going to strike the nations. It is the sword that comes out of his mouth that is striking the nations. I'm reminded of uh, what the author of Hebrews has to say about the word of God. He says, uh, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Do you really believe that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords? Do you really believe that his word is capable of such judgment? If you do, why is it still so difficult to 
overcome temptation? Why is, it, why is the world still so attractive? Why is Babylon still Babylon in her luxuries and her passion? Why is it still so attractive? Why is the beast in, in, in his power so deceitful? I think that perhaps is because we do not think as much about Jesus being King of Kings and Lord of Lords, right? If we, if we had this picture of Jesus, this image of Jesus as the conquering Messiah in our minds, if we thought of him like this, maybe we would be more, more successful against temptation. Maybe the world wouldn't be as tempting to us. Maybe the beast would not have as much power over us because we know that Jesus is king of kings because he know because we know that he is the righteous judge because we know that he is faithful and true because we know that he is the word of God and that his word is capable of judging us if we had these things in mind I think we would be a lot more successful in fighting against sin we would be a lot more successful in fighting against temptation and resisting the devil. In verse 17, we see the second I saw. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. The book of Revelation is filled with uh, mirroring images, with, with contrasting images. For example, you know, the, the the, the, the followers of the beast, they receive a seal. Well, the, the followers of God, they already had a seal, right? There, there's a bunch of images that mirror each other in the book of Revelation. Well, here we have another one, but this one, this time, these two images are, are coming from God. In chapter 19, verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Oh, sorry, verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So here we have a, a supper. We have a marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a celebration. It's a beautiful, uh, uh, it's a beautiful celebration where, God, where Jesus is marrying the church. But here in verse 17, we have another banquet. We have another supper. And this one is not pretty at all. This one, is not this one is not a beautiful image. In this one, this angel is calling all the birds of prey, all the birds that come and, and eat the flesh. And he is inviting them because the outcome of this last battle is going to be terrible. And notice how... In other parts of, of Revelation, we have seen and a third of humanity was heard and a third of this was heard and, and everything. But here, there's no thirds. Here is the whole. It says, In the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great, everyone who continues in their unrepentance, everyone who has received 
the mark of the beast, who continues in rejection of God, will be judged and will be destroyed, will be killed. Now, this is a foretelling, right? It hasn't happened yet. This is a foretelling of what's going to happen. And then we come to the third I I saw in verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was capturing with it the false prophet who is in who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the battle of Armageddon. But I think it could almost be called the battle of Armageddon. Why do I say that? Well, it almost seems like there was no battle at all. There was no, they they were no match for the rider on the white horse. All of the kings of the earth with the beast and gathered together, gathered against God, against his church, against his people. You have the, the, the setup for a great epic battle. But then you read and there's no battle. Because there are no match for Jesus. They are immediately defeated. The beast is captured along with the false, with the false prophet, the second beast. And they are both thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Never to be seen again. They are there to be judged forever. And so again, like we've been talking about, this is, this is God systematically dealing with each one of his enemies. He has defeated those that received the mark of the beast. He has destroyed Babylon. And now he has captured the beast and the false prophet, the second beast. And he has finally given them what is due. He has finally delivered his people from the power of of the beast. Verse 21, and the rest were slain by the sword and came from that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the end of those that continue in their unbelief. Now I want to go back to one part that we skipped. In verse 13, it says that he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. When we think of this image, right, of Jesus coming as a warrior, and when we think how he destroys his enemies, we would probably be led to think, okay, so maybe this this blood is the blood of his enemies, right? I mean, he's conquering, he, he has fought, and therefore he's got to have the blood of all of his enemies. And this is something that has been suggested as, a, as, as an interpretation. Um, but there is another interpretation that to me, it makes a little bit more sense. This interpretation is that the blood that is on his robe is his own, his own blood. I mean, if you think about it, he has not fought yet. 
right? He is coming down. The battle has not happened yet as he is being described. This blood on his robe is his own blood. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered, but he is still the lamb of God that was slain. He is the the, the, the Messiah, the, the conquering warrior that, that all of the Jewish people were expecting. But he is also the sacrificial lamb who gave his life to save us, to save his people. He would not be able to come as the conquering warrior, as the conquering and triumphant triumphal king and Messiah had he not gone to the cross and shed his own blood. He would not be able to make us a kingdom of of priests if he had not first paid for our redemption with his blood. And so as as we look at this image of Jesus, as we as we look at this highly triumphal picture of Jesus, my prayer is that we would be encouraged, that we would, we would even though we see the world around us, even though we see our battle with, with, sin, with sin, with temptation, even though we experience sickness, even though we um, are discouraged by everything that is going on in the world, my prayer is that as we look at Jesus in his final and full glory, we would be encouraged to remain faithful. We would be encouraged to conquer. The book opens with the call to conquer and the book ends with those who conquered being in the presence of God. And that we would be encouraged to know that Jesus is the one who is finally going to accomplish all of these things. Yes, we have a a, a role to play. We have commands for us to conquer, to be faithful, to be faithful witnesses. But the good news is that Jesus is ultimately the one who is accomplishing all of these things. He is our ultimate hope. I want to finish by reading from Philippians. And now I cannot find it. I I didn't write it down here on my notes and now I cannot find it. Oh, here we go. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our hope is still in Jesus coming from heaven, giving us our glorified bodies, restoring this earth, bringing a new heavens and a new earth, restoring his creation. He is the one that is going to come and triumph over us. 
Why? Because he is the one whose blood, whose, whose rope is dipped in his own blood because he gave his life for us. Let's pray. God, we worship you. We give you glory. As we look at this image of your son, Jesus, as the, as the Messiah, as the Christ, coming in full glory. Please give us faith to hold on to this hope. Even when things in this world do not look like you are winning, help us to remember everything we've seen in the book of Revelation. Help us to remember that your son Jesus is already seated at your right hand and you are putting all of his enemies under his feet. Help us to remain firm because we know that your, Lord, your, your son, the Lord Jesus, is going to come down from heaven to establish his kingdom forever. And we will reign with him if we remain faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take a few minutes to remember his robe dipped in blood dipped in his own blood. We're going to remember his body that was given for us, his sacrifice. As we, take a, as we eat the bread, we will remember his bread, his body that he gave for us. And as we take the cup, we will remember his blood that was shed for us. We're going to uh, sing this next hymn together. And then, and then as we are singing, you are welcome to come and, and grab the elements. And at the end of the song, we will take them together.